Our Sunday morning sermon series is called The Book of the Twelve. We're looking at the 12 books that come at the very end of our Old Testaments. And so far, we've looked at Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and last week, Jonah. So this morning, we're talking about the book of Micah. And the first thing I want to say about Micah is that Micah might be the most forgettable of all the minor prophets. When you look at the 12, there's some things in some of these books that really stand out in your mind. For example, when I think about the book of Joel, I always think about this wave after wave after wave of locust plague that Joel talks about, and that stands out in my mind. I've got something to, to hang on to about Joel. When I think about Hosea, I think about the personal drama between him and his wife and his children that's intertwined with the message of the book. When you think about Jonah, you think about this great story, the one true story of all the minor prophets, and that stands out. In a few weeks, we'll get to Zechariah, and you get to Zechariah, and he has these fantastic visions. And you read these visions, and at first you just say, what in the world is this guy talking about? This is, this is just crazy stuff. And Micah just doesn't really have any one thing that makes you remember the book. Here's how forgettable Micah is. Last night, we got the kids all put down to bed, and we're sort of calming down, getting ready to go to sleep. And my wife says, well, which minor prophet are we talking about tomorrow? And I just fired off. I said, Nahum. Nahum's next. I just completely skipped Micah. And I got to the office this morning, and I got my notes out to study and look over my message. And I said, we can't talk about Nahum, we got to talk about Micah, the guy we always forget. Here's the danger. As I thought about Micah this week, I thought, this guy, is, he's almost forgettable because there's just not one big thing that stands out in the book that sort of I can hang my memory on. If you forget Micah, what you end up doing is forgetting some of the greatest prophecies pointing us forward to Jesus and some of the greatest words about the character of God being compassionate and gracious and forgiving. And the way it all fits in in the end and the providence of God and the history of redemption is really, really a beautiful thing. And so we're talking this morning about Micah. How does Micah, let's start with this, how does he fit into the overall story of Israel? This is on your outline if you like to follow along. Micah preached just before the Assyrian exile of Israel in 722 B.C. We can piece that together from Micah chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to put our timeline up. If you've been here the last five weeks, this is starting to look familiar, I hope. We start off with the unified kingdom. This is the nation of Israel under Saul, and then after Saul came David, and then after David came Solomon. All of the 12 tribes together in one kingdom. But after Solomon dies, two guys take over, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they split the kingdom in two. Israel is in the north, and Judah is in the south. That's the divided kingdom. We fast forward. All of the kings of Israel in the north were wicked, and eventually God sends the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, the capital, falls, and the northern kingdom is taken into exile in Assyria. That's 722 B.C., and we're going to talk about that event this morning. And then if you fast forward a little bit further, God gets fed up with Judah in the south, and he sends the Babylonians, and they conquer Jerusalem. They flatten the temple, and they haul the people of Judah into exile. We would take Micah, and we put him right here after the divided kingdom, and really, I I sort of split the difference. Maybe I should have bumped him a little bit closer to the Assyrian exile. Because more than likely, Micah preached 
during the time that Assyria was conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. He preached before it, he preached during it, and then he was pointing the people, warning them about the disaster that was coming in Babylon. And so he lived during the downfall of Israel, and he warned about the downfall of Judah. He lived during the downfall of the northern kingdom. He lived to see that happen. And then he told the people, you better watch out because the exact same thing will happen to Judah if you're not careful. Chapter 1, verse 1 fills in some of the details. He preached during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All of these men were kings of Judah in the south. And we're going to talk about Hezekiah in a few minutes. Here's how I would summarize the book of Micah. If we just had to distill it down to one sentence. Micah is a book about God saving his people. That's the heart of the book. And if you're not careful, you might miss it. Because the book is structured in a way that actually highlights sin and God's anger with sin and his judgment on sin. That's sort of the big overall structure of the book. And you may come away and just say, well, this is a a book about God being angry. But at the heart of the book, and literally I mean the heart, right at the middle of the book, the most important chapter is a chapter about God restoring his people and saving his people. And when you get to the end of the book, there's sort of a rule in in Jewish literature sometimes. You look at the middle for the big idea and you look at the end for the big idea. And at the middle and again at the end, you find promises of hope and promises of redemption and promises of salvation. Really, this is a book about God saving his people. What do we know about Micah the man? Let me just give you a few thoughts quickly. Micah means who is like the Lord. Question. That's what his name means. Who is like the Lord. And just an interesting detail. If you take your Bible and flip to the very last chapter of Micah. Micah 7. Chapter 7 verse 18. Excuse me. Micah 7 18. Contains this phrase. Who is a God like you? Literally he's put his name into the story. That's what his name means. Who is like God? And he just uses it in expanded form in chapter 7, verse 18. We know that he was from a town called Morsheth in Judah. It was sort of a rural area. I'll put the map up quickly. We've looked at this map. You can see Israel in purple in the north, Judah's in the south. And Morsheth is just sort of southwest of Bethlehem, southwest of Jerusalem. Not a very important place, not a notable place, not even a place that appears on lots of maps of this part of the world, old maps of this part of the world, but that's where Micah was from. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos and Hosea. And for those of you who like trivia and you like to sort of dig around in extra things, I'll just, I'll give you this. This is not on your notes, it's not on the screen, but you can jot it down and it's sort of interesting. Micah 4, 1 to 3, if you look that up and you read those verses, Micah 4, 1 to 3 almost identical to the words you find in Isaiah 2, 2 to 4, verbatim. And scholars sort of look at this and they say, who's quoting who? Was it the minor prophet quoting the major prophet, or maybe it was the major prophet quoting the minor prophet, or maybe it was both of these guys quoting someone else that we don't have record of, but the words are so identical, it's obvious that these guys knew about each other and they were on the same page as far as their message is concerned. One last interesting thing about Micah, he's mentioned in Jeremiah 26. He's mentioned in Jeremiah 26. We're not going to read it. I just think the story is interesting. Jeremiah was written at least a hundred years after Micah. 
It's hard for us to go back so far in history and to think about the scope of the timelines we're talking about. But just try to wrap your mind around this. Micah preaches, and then a hundred years go by, an entire century. And there's a guy named Jeremiah. He's a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah is going around, and he's saying to the people, God is going to destroy this city. He's going to send Babylon to destroy us. And all of the false prophets are running around saying, no, 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 it's not going to happen. It would never happen. It's not going to happen. Jeremiah, quit talking like that. Jeremiah, you're guilty of treason. Jeremiah, it sounds like you want that to happen. And they actually arrest Jeremiah. They charge him with treason, and they have this little mock trial. And there are men, false prophets in the southern kingdom of Judah, who say, we should kill Jeremiah because he keeps saying that God's going to destroy this city. And at the mock trial, there's an interesting statement. They're weighing Jeremiah's fate, and somebody pipes up and says, you know, about a hundred years ago, there was a guy named Micah. And he went around saying exactly the same thing. And we didn't kill that guy. In fact, if you go back and looked at what happened, they actually listened to that guy. Maybe we shouldn't listen to this crazy Jeremiah guy, but at least maybe we shouldn't kill him. And they put the brakes on the execution, at least what the Scripture says in Jeremiah 26, because they remembered the ministry of Micah. That brings us to his message. What was it that he preached? What was it that people remembered? What was it that he wanted to say to Israel and to Judah? We'll sum it up with three thoughts. Number one, God wants sin to be exposed. He wants sin to be called sin. He wants the guilty to be identified. He wanted Micah to go around and to point out the sin of the people and to make it clear to them that they had sinned and to make it clear to them how they had sinned against the Lord. And I mentioned this a second ago. You see this idea in the structure of the book. There's really three main parts to the book of Micah. Each one of them begins with this word, hear, or listen. And so just take your Bible. You're going to need it now all the way through the end of the message. We're going to look up and down Micah. Look at Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, all you peoples. Listen. That's the first section of the book, and it runs all the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now take your Bible and look at Micah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Second time, he says, listen up. Hear me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And that section runs from chapter 3 to chapter 4 to chapter 5. Now look at Micah chapter 6, verse 2. Here's the last section. It's chapter 6 and 7. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the the hills hear your voice. Three times he says, hear, listen up, pay attention, listen to what I'm telling you. And then he goes immediately into renouncing the sins of the people. And those are the three main sections of Micah. We're not going to walk through the whole book, but I do want to walk through part of chapter 1 so you get some of the idea. So take your Bible and look at Micah chapter 1. I just want you to notice some of the key words here. Look at Micah 1.1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, 
These are things, the word of the Lord that came to him, these are things which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So it's before the Assyrians came, and he's talking to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and he's talking to Jerusalem, the the capital of the southern kingdom, and he's saying, look, I don't care if you're in the north or the south. I don't care if you're part of Israel, Judah. I don't care who you are. You need to listen to what God has to say. He's addressing God's people. Look at chapter 1 in verse 2. God comes as a witness against the people. It says, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. God is portrayed in his holiness, and he's testifying against his own people in this court. He's angry with their sin. Look at verse 5. It talks about the transgression of Jacob and the sins of of the house of Israel. Look at verse 7. He talks about carved images and idols that will be laid waste. Look what he says in verse 9. He talks about the wound, this wound of the northern kingdom that has come to Judah. This idolatry that started in Israel has now spread and it's like a cancer. It's grown into the southern kingdom. They're both guilty. Look at verse 13. Again, it talks about a transgression. And it talks about sin. Look at verse 15. He says, I'm going to bring a destroyer or a conqueror to you. Somebody's going to come and act as God's God's rod of judgment on the people. Look at verse 16. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. I'm trying to play the part this morning. For the children of your delight, make yourself as bald as the eagle. They shall go from you into exile. God's going to send you out of this place. He's angry with your transgression. He's angry with your sin. He's called court, and he's called the whole world to listen. And the Lord, think about the the terror of this if it was true of you. The Lord himself is testifying against you. We've seen a lot of testimony over the last couple of weeks in our nation. And what the prophet is saying is, it's not, a, it's not a king testifying against you. It's not a ruler or a leader or a politician. It's not a prophet. The Lord is testifying against you. He wants the sin of the people to be exposed. Just a few more verses so you get the feel of this. Look at Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it's in the power of their hand. He's talking here about premeditated sin. This is not something you just stumbled into. Like you woke up and you just sort of found yourself sinning. This is something that you've been calculating. Something you've been planning. It's an intentional decision. You know what is right. And you've been planning this evil in your mind and in your heart. And then when the time comes, you carry it out. Look what he says in Micah 2 verse 6. This is a fascinating Verse, a glimpse of Micah's life. Notice the quotation marks in chapter 2, verse 6. Quote, do not preach, end quote. Don't, don't say this. And then he gives us a little explanation. He says, thus they preach. This is what they're saying. I don't want them to say this, but this is what they're actually saying. Quote, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah's going around pointing out everybody's sin, just like Jeremiah would do later. And those whose sin is being exposed are saying, would you quit talking like that? 
Would you quit pointing your finger at me? Would you quit calling me a sinner? Would you quit using that S word, sin? Would you quit being so negative? Nothing bad is going to happen to us. We've been listening to prophets for, for decades, for centuries, and nothing has happened. Would you just stop it already, Micah? And Micah says, they tell me not to preach. They tell me not to talk. Look how he describes his ministry. Micah chapter 3, verse 8. He says, as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Why did God fill him with all of these things? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God has filled me with his Spirit. He's given me power and might. And even though everyone else tells me to stop talking about it, God has sent me to expose your sin. I think this is fascinating, and I don't want to get on too big of a soapbox, but I think this is fascinating when you think about what would Micah say if he walked into a typical church in the United States of America? Where much of the message is intentionally designed to be positive and encouraging and uplifting without ever using the word sin. Without ever presenting God in his holiness. Without ever looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's law. And without ever pointing the finger at ourselves and just admitting we are sinners. Micah would walk into that and I think his head would explode. He would say, what do you mean you're not going to talk about sin? What do you mean you don't want to be negative? What do you mean you don't want to be discouraging? What do you mean they want an uplifting message? How can you get to any good news unless you first deal with reality? And the first thing that Micah is sent to do as he's preaching to the people, and it happens all the way through the book, is he's exposing sin. Listen to me because we're going to come back to this. Never in the book of Micah does he tell the people to repent. Never. He just says, this is who God is. He's the Holy One in His temple. And you have fallen far short of His standard. You're sinful, wicked, idolatrous people. So first, He's exposing sin. Secondly, this is the next part of His message. He says, God is going to restore His people. And this is shocking when you read that he's, he's called court and the Lord is testifying against his people, he's angry with their sin, he's going to send them into exile, and even in the midst of promising judgment, he keeps saying, but God is going to be gracious to you. He's going to restore you. He's not going to abandon you forever. And I just want you to, to read some of these passages with me throughout the book of Micah. Look at Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He's saying, you're this remnant and you're going to be scattered, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to be your shepherd and you're going to be my people. Look what he says in Micah chapter 4 verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 is interesting because the previous verse says that Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins. Literally, he just said out of his mouth, this city, this capital of Judah, this holy place in this temple, it's just going to be raised to the ground because of your sin. 
And then look what he says in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. He said earlier, I'm going to send you away from this place into exile. But he says a day is coming in the latter days where this city is going to be once again exalted and people are going to come to this city. They're not going to be driven from the city into exile, but they're actually going to come back to this city. Chapter 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant, a remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. You're about to be punished, but I'm going to bring you back. And it's going to be better than it's ever been before. Look at chapter 4. At the last part of verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says, you will be rescued. Right before that, he says, you're going to go to Babylon. And then he says, you're going to be rescued. And the Lord will redeem you from the land of your enemies or from the hand of your enemies. Chapter 5, verse 4. It says, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. They will dwell secure. Look, he's just said to them, you are not secure. A nation is going to come and conquer you. And you're going to be taken from your home. But he says a day is coming where you will be secure and the Lord will be your shepherd. Look at Micah 7, verse 7. Just one more verse. He says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And my God will hear me. All throughout the book, just little sprinkles. You're just peppered over and over again with these verses of hope. The overall structure is saying God is angry. Listen up. He's angry. Listen up. He's angry. Listen up. He's angry three times. But all throughout the book, he says, God's going to redeem you. God's going to restore you. God's not going to cast you off forever. Here's the third part of Micah's message. God wants his people to know who he is. He wants people to know him. That's true whether he's acting in judgment or that's true whether he's acting in mercy. He wants people to know. Very quickly, Micah 4, 5. says, all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh, the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Right? There's this hope that God's people who are called by his name will walk in his name, who will walk according to his character. They're going to know him. Micah chapter 6, verse 5. Here's, here's God wanting people to know in judgment who he is. It says, O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, what Balaam the son of Peor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. All those people listed in that verse, you say, I don't know who they are. God destroyed them. He brought judgment on them. And the prophet is reminding you, remember the saving acts of the Lord. He saved his people in the past. He brought destruction on the enemies of his people. And he can do that again. One last passage. Look at Micah 7, 16 to 17. It says, the nations will see and be ashamed of their might. What a great picture. All your pride and all of the things your nation has accomplished. One day you'll be ashamed of it. 
They're going to come before the Lord in all their might, with all their power and all their glory, and they're going to feel shame for that. The nations will see and they will be ashamed of all their might. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to see the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. They will know who the Lord is. That's his message. It's not delivered with flashy visions or dreams. It's not told on a a personal level with a, a story of drama and betrayal like Hosea did. There's nothing sort of catchy like a, a devastating locust plague to hang your hat on, but that's his message to the people. It's very simple. He wants to expose sin, he wants to promise restoration, and he wants the people to know the Lord. What do we do with that? We live an, an awful long time after Micah walked this earth and preached that message. What do we do with it? Let me give you three suggestions. Number one, we practice repentance. We practice repentance. We're not going to look these two scriptures up, but I just want you to think about this timeline once more. And I'll let you go back and look the verses. You double-check me. Make sure I'm putting all these pieces together correctly. Micah preaches right before the exile of the northern kingdom into Assyria. The Bible tells us that story. It tells us that there was a, a leader of Assyria named Sennacherib who came and marched against Samaria and conquered the city and hauled the people into exile. And in his pride, he'd been conquering nation after nation after nation. He takes the northern kingdom into exile, and then Assyria, in their pride, sets their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah. You're saying, wait, I thought Babylon took the southern kingdom into exile. They did, but Assyria had their eyes set on Judah. And they came marching against this city. And Sennacherib stood at the gates of Jerusalem and he mocked the Lord. He mocked him in the hearing of all the people. And he didn't do it in his own tongue. They did it in the Hebrew tongue for all the people to hear. He said, you think Yahweh can save you? Yahweh can't save you. Our gods are more powerful. Our armies are stronger. You have no chance. He mocked God. He mocked the Lord. And he said, I promise you I will destroy this place. Micah was alive for all that. He was preaching. What was he preaching? He was saying to the people, you are sinful, wicked people. God is the holy judge and he's testifying against you. And the Bible actually says in retrospect, you can read in Jeremiah 26, it looks back in retrospect. And the king of Judah at the time was a man named Hezekiah. And the Bible says, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, listened to Micah and repented. You say, wait a minute. I thought Micah didn't tell anyone to repent. I thought he never used the word repent. As far as we know, he didn't. As far as we know, it may have happened and it just wasn't recorded. But what we have recorded in the scriptures, we know that he never told Hezekiah or anyone else to repent. All he did is set up this dichotomy. God is the holy judge and you are sinful people. I need you to see God for who he is as the holy, sovereign judge of all mankind. And I need you to see yourself as sinners. And when Hezekiah heard Micah preach that message, he repented. And he did his best to lead the people in repentance. 
And you know what happened is that Assyrian army sat right outside the gates of Jerusalem. There was their leader boasting, defying the Lord, cursing the Lord. They went to sleep with plans to invade the next day. And that night, the Bible says the angel of the Lord went out and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in their sleep. And the king of Assyria put his tail between his legs and he went home. And God saved his people. And I bring that story up to help you see where Micah fits in, but also to say this. As far as we know, Micah never told anyone to repent. He just set up the dichotomy of who God is as the Holy One and who we are as sinners. Hezekiah was smart enough. His heart was in the right place, and he put two and two together, and he said, we've got to repent and seek the Lord. And I'm begging you to do the same this morning. When you see God as the Holy One, and you understand who He is in His character, and you see your sin for what it is, as someone who has fallen short of God's glory, the only play, the only option really on the table for you is repent, to turn, to confess to God and agree with God, God, you are holy and I'm not holy. And I want to turn from that. I want to change my mind about my sin. I don't want to think about sin like the world thinks about it, just trying to ignore it and pretend like it's not real. I want it to be exposed. I want you to show it to me. And I want to turn away from it. Hezekiah did that. And I think if we listen to Micah's message, we ought to do the exact same thing. Secondly, how do we apply the message? We should want the same things God wants. We should want the same things that God wants. Look at Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Shall I come before him with calves a year old? Maybe the Lord would be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does God want from me? Does he want me to come bow down and go through the ritual just to do the stuff? Does he want some sort of burnt offering, some sort of animal? Does he want, what does he want? Maybe he wants my firstborn, and that would make things right. What does God want from me? Look what the prophet says in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to be just and kind to others. And he wants you to be humble before him. The prophet says God has told you, and I'm left with the question, where did he tell us that? Where did he say that? Because that's the only place, Micah 6.8, it's the only place in the Bible you find those words. What does he mean God has told you this? And I think what the prophet is pointing us to is the Ten Commandments. We've been studying them on Wednesday nights. And we've talked about the two tables of the law, the two tables of the Ten Commandments. The first few commandments talk about our obligation towards God. And Micah summarizes that and says, you need to walk humbly with God. You need to be humble before Him. 
And then he summarizes the second table of the law that talk about our obligation towards other people. And he says, you need to be just and kind to the people that God puts in your life. He's summarizing the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, look, God has told you what he wants. You look at this law and first, you've got to see that you've fallen short and you've got to agree with God about your sin. But secondly, you've got to look at that law and say, this is what God wants from his people. This is what he wants. Micah 6, 8. Summarizing the Ten Commandments, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. So we should want the same things that God wants. One last idea. Don't close your Bible. Don't close your Bible. We have hope when we fall short. We have hope when we fall short. We're going to look at Micah 7. We're going to talk a little bit, and we're going to look at Micah 5. Micah 7, the last verses, 18, 19, and 20. Here's where he puts his name into the story. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Is there any other God that does that? There's all sorts of other gods. They require sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals. But who is like the Lord who forgives the sin of his people, who pardons their iniquity? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, notice this gets very personal. He's gone from the third person to the second person. He said, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, but now it's as if his gaze has shifted directly towards God, and he says this, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You remember the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament? Go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. You can read about the Day of Atonement. The Jewish people observed it once a year and the high priest on this one day was allowed to go into the most holy place. First it was the tabernacle and later it was the temple. And before he could go into that most holy place, he first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And so he took a bull and he laid his hands on this bull and he confessed his sins and they slaughtered it and they put the blood inside the holy place and he's making atonement for his own sins. Then he comes back out and he's ready to represent the people, the nation, and they take two goats and they cast lots for these goats. And one of the goats, he places his hands on the head of this goat and he confesses the sins of the people and they slit its neck and they take its blood and they take it into the holy place and they sprinkle it there. And it's this reminder that our sin leads to death. It's a reminder that we need a substitute. But there's still one more goat. And with that second goat, he takes his hands and he places it on its head and he confesses his sins and then they drive that goat away into the wilderness. And it's this picture Atonement has been made, and God has removed your sins from you. He sent them out into the wilderness, as it were. And the people celebrated this every year. They ran into a bit of an issue when they eventually were sent into exile. When Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem and flattened the temple and scattered the people everywhere. They still wanted to celebrate the Day of Atonement, but they didn't have a tabernacle, and they no longer had a temple to offer the sacrifices at. They had something called synagogues where they would sort of gather together for singing and preaching and fellowship, but they didn't offer sacrifices at the synagogues. 
they're sort of caught in this weird place of we want to remember the day of atonement, but we can't kill the animals because we don't have the holy place. What do we do? So this is not in the Bible, but just over history, they develop new traditions, sort of like your family has traditions on a holiday. They sort of develop their own traditions. Here was one of the traditions they developed. When they had these synagogues, they're living in exile. They can't offer the sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. They said, on the Day of Atonement, we're going to gather together and read Micah 7, 18, 19, and 20. We're going to remind ourselves on this day Yes, we're going to read from Leviticus, but we're also going to read how Micah talked about it, that God is going to trample our sins under his feet, that God is going to take our sins, if you like this image better, and hurl them into the depths of the ocean so that they sink all the way to the bottom. And then, you may think this is kind of silly or you may think it's kind of neat. They would read Micah, and as soon as the last word was read, they would roll up the scroll. Everyone would get up. They would run outside to the nearest body of water, lake, pond, ocean, whatever. For you and I, we'd be doing a lot of running in Odessa, right? But you run to the nearest place that has water, and you take something with you. You fill your pockets up that morning. Whatever you got with you, when you get to the water, everyone hurls whatever's in your pocket into the water. Why? Micah 7, 18. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's the people acknowledging we're sinful people. And we can't fix our sin problem. God can fix it. And someday he's going to fix it. And it's going to be like this. It's going to be like he takes all of our sins off of us and he just hurls it into the depths of the sea. You and I know on this side of redemptive history that God did something far greater than emptying his pockets in the ocean. He sent his son. He sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of the day of atonement. He didn't need to lay his hands on a bull and sacrifice a bull for his own sins. The Bible said he was perfect and spotless, a lamb without blemish. And he pictures both of these goats killed on the day of atonement. Yes, the one who dies for the sins of his people, but also this idea that our sins are removed from us. They're taken away from us. Or as the prophet says, they're taken off of us and they're hurled into the depths of the ocean. I want you to understand that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the day of atonement and all the little Jewish traditions that developed around it. He's also the fulfillment of Micah. There's a great tension when you just leave off reading Micah if you don't know the end of the story. The tension is God exposes the sins of his people and he promises judgment. And at the same time throughout the book, he says he's going to restore them and he's going to have mercy on them. And you're left wrestling with how are both of those things going to happen? Surely one will win out over the other. Either he won't be just and he'll just sort of forgive and wink at sin, or he's just going to have to come down in judgment and mercy's going to lose out. How can he do both? And you and I know the answer is the cross. At the cross, he did both. He punished our sins in his son so that we could be forgiven. He takes our sins, as it were, and he hurls them into the depths of the sea. And in hurling them, he hurls them on his son, who takes the punishment and the judgment for our transgressions. I want you to see that Micah is talking about that in the heart of this book. Look at Micah chapter 5. Micah 5. 
There's a number of prophecies here, and they're all just strung together. And before we read it, I'm going to put a picture up. I want you to think of the prophecies that we're about to read like this mountain range. Okay? We like to look back at the prophets, and we like to make timelines. We like to put everything in order. I've given you a timeline every week. This is when it happened, first, second, third. That's how we make sense of things. And we'd really like it if the prophets played that game with us, but they don't. The prophets look at future events sort of like you're looking at this mountain range, right? The closest peak appears to be, as I look at the picture, up on the right. And then maybe some of the ones right in the middle, and then a few on the left and the right, and then in the far distance on the, on the right side of the picture, there's some more. And we say, that's the depth of it. But when the biblical prophets look to the future and describe things about Jesus, they don't work from front to back. They just sort of move across the landscape. And you say, well, they're going all out of order. Well, that's how God inspired them to do it. That's how God revealed it to them. That's how they wrote about it. You can take objection with it, or you can just realize this is what they're doing. They're not moving from the front to the back and giving you a one, two, three, four, five. They're just moving across the landscape, and they're giving you this panoramic picture of all that God's going to do for his people. That's what's happening in Micah 5. So take your Bible. Look at Micah 5, starting in verse 1. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 5, he shall be their peace. Micah's just looking across the landscape. And he's not laying it out in chronological order, but he's just describing what God is going to do to save his people. The book ends saying this. He pardons iniquities. He passes over transgressions. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. How is that going to play out? Micah 5 is giving you the answer. He's moving across the landscape and he's saying this. Verse 1, there will be a judge of Israel who will be struck on the cheek. You say, what kind of judge gets struck on the cheek? And if you've read the New Testament, you know the answer. Verse 2, there will be a ruler from Bethlehem. And bells should be going off in your head. And you say, wait a minute, we sing sing that Christmas song. O little town of Bethlehem. And the prophet says that this ruler, his beginning will be from eternity past. And you say, how is one going to come in the future who's also from the past? And if you've read the New Testament, you know the answer. Verse 3, there will be one who is born. This woman will give birth, and it will bring back the rest of the brothers. Verse 4, there will be a shepherd who looks after his flock. Makes you think of John 10, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I'm going to call them, and they're going to know me because my sheep know me. He says those people will be secure. 
And this shepherd will be great to the ends of the earth. It makes you think of Philippians 2 where he says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. They're all going to know. Verse 5, he's going to be their peace. Right now there is no peace between God and his people. He is holy and they're sinful and there's great conflict. But God himself is going to act on behalf of his people to make peace. Micah is pointing you to Jesus. He wants you to see God in his holiness. He wants you to agree with God about your sin. But ultimately, he wants you to look to the fulfillment of these prophecies, these promises, that God would make peace with his people.